Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Summer might be in the rearview mirror, but that doesn't mean there's been a slowing of news from the national park system. This past week, we offered some ideas for how to spend three days at Redwood National and State Parks in California, looked at an interesting visit to the Three Sisters at Petroglyph National Monument in New Mexico, and reported on an effort in Congress to create a sixth national park in Utah. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we look at a nonprofit organization whose sole existence is to acquire, from willing sellers of course, private lands surrounded by official or proposed wilderness in national parks, national forests, and other publicly owned lands. Once those lands are acquired and transferred to the appropriate federal land managers, the Wilderness Land Trust will put itself out of business. But that's not going to happen overnight, as the Trust's Executive Director, Brad Borst, explains during our conversation. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, and that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Across the West, there are many acres of privately owned lands that are located within boundaries of national parks and other public lands that, ideally, would be great to be included within those publicly owned lands, especially if they're located within officially designated wilderness or adjacent to wilderness areas. While the federal government at times works to acquire those lands, there's a nonprofit organization that has worked since 1992 to acquire some of those lands and pass them on to the pertinent federal agency, whether it's the Forest Service or the National Park Service. Joining us today to discuss the Wilderness Land Trust and its work is Brad Borst, its president. Welcome to The Traveler, Brad. Thank you. Very nice to be here. To, to kick it off, why don't you just provide an overview of the trust and you know why did it organize back in 1992 and what's it accomplished over the years? Well, uh, that's a great question and I, I appreciate it. So the, the trust was founded in 1992, as you, as you mentioned, by a gentleman named Jan Mulford in Aspen, Colorado. 
And while he was negotiating several small land swaps with the U.S. Forest Service, he discovered that private inholdings were creating management uh, problems within designated wilderness areas. And for your listeners that uh, don't know it, the 1964 Wilderness Act has created a globally unique system of wilderness areas that recognize the value of preserving, quote, an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. So our nation's wilderness preservation system is a wildlife safe haven for threatened and endangered species, a reservoir for clean air and water in a rapidly changing climate, it's a refuge from the noise and pace of urban areas and an opportunity to, to experience the profound beauty of nature. The National Wilderness Preservation System totals more than 111 million acres today, over 803 wilderness areas, although that is less than 2% of the lower 48 states. So when faced with this challenge, Jan founded the trust with an ambitious long-range mission, and that was to acquire unprotected private lands within designated wilderness and return them to public ownership to guarantee that future generations can enjoy the enduring resources of wilderness. Fast forward to today, uh, the Wilderness Land Trust is an accredited land trust and we're dedicated to maintaining the highest standards in land conservation. With one third of our designated wilderness areas in the U.S. threatened by private development within its boundaries, we're the only national conservation organization solely dedicated to purchasing privately owned lands within designated and proposed wilderness areas to remove land management conflicts stemming from commercial, industrial, and residential development. And we have a national reputation for tenacity, fairness, and professionalism. So my team is small. We're spread out across the Western United States where the vast majority of, of designated wilderness is located. And that includes two land specialists, one based in Idaho who covers largely the Northwest part of the, the Western US and another based in California that focuses on that, that state which has a considerable amount of uh, inholdings and the, the so Southwest part of the US. I have a director of operations in Colorado uh, who kind of holds the whole thing together, uh, who's a terrific uh, person, very detail oriented. And because each project uh, encompasses approximately 40 different actions or steps we have to consider, uh, she really is sort of the, the hub of the wheel in terms of our lands program. And then myself and director of communications are based up here in Washington State. We're designed to be mobile, out on the ground frequently, either meeting with landowners, doing project site visits, meeting with agency folks, or uh, in my case, meeting with uh, potential donors and current donors. We're governed by a 14 member volunteer board of directors. And so we largely utilize our real estate expertise to negotiate and acquire private property from willing sellers at fair market, uh, price before transferring the land to, to a federal agency where it's protected as federally designated wilderness. And so we are a land trust, but we're a little bit different in that we don't hold on to the parcels we acquire in mm -hmm. perpetuity. We don't utilize conservation easements. We buy and we sell. 
uh, and so every project has two parts, the, the acquisition and then the transfer. And during our 28 year history, we've permanently protected 52,726 acres to date. And that includes 493 parcels in 108 wilderness areas that were transferred to public ownership. And then we helped to complete 17 wilderness areas. And by that, I mean removing the last remaining private inholding within the designation. We have 36 active projects in nearly every Western state, including one in Alaska right now. Uh, this includes 12 properties that we're working to acquire in, in, in Washington, Colorado, California, and New Mexico, and 24 that we're working to transfer over to public ownership in Alaska, Arizona, California, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, and Washington. And that doesn't include a dozen projects that are currently on hold for a, a variety of reasons, and in that case, we might develop a project along a certain path that becomes active and then um, the landowner rejects the appraised value and uh, has to sit on it for a while and kind of contemplate whether they truly want to sell at that price or test the market. But um, those, those dozen projects could pop at any time if we get a call from somebody saying, hey, I've changed my mind and we're ready to roll. Sure, sure. That's a that's no small task that you have there to deal with, especially with a small staff and a, a far-flung landscape to keep an eye on and see what might come up from time to time. And, and it's got to be expensive. I mean, where do you get your funding from? Our funding comes primarily from donations. Over the years, we've built up what's called the Wilderness Opportunity Fund within the organization, and that's purely for land acquisition. And when fully uh, if I had no projects out today, I, I, it's closer to $2 million, but right now it is out and, it, you know, those projects that are waiting to transfer. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, lo I lost you for a minute there, uh, Brad. You were talking about you've got $2 million, but it's all out. Yeah, it, it's, it's tied up in, a, in, a, in those um, 24 projects that are waiting to transfer by and large. And it's made up of, of pots of money. Some of them are restricted to particular states. If, that, if the person that contributed th those dollars have a, have a passion for either a particular wilderness, a landscape, or just the state in general, others are, we're free to allocate those dollars where needed. The remaining funds that we need each year uh, to, for just our operational support, and that's the day-to-day -day operations of the organization, is, comes from our annual fundraising efforts. And then if we are in a situation, Kurt, where an opportunity arises and uh, we need to acquire a parcel, we often partner with uh, local organizations if they're involved in that landscape or we might acquire a low interest loan to help cover the gap until we can transfer that parcel and, and bring those funds back into the organization to put them right back to work again. Sure. Um, does the Land and Water Conservation Fund, is that able to help your efforts? I mean, Congress just uh, fully funded it for the first time in uh, maybe forever, um, but that's $900 million a year. Is there any way you can tap some of that to help accomplish your, your, your jobs, your purchases? The Land and Water Conservation Fund is, is critical to the success of our organization each project because the, the, the agencies, whether it's the U.S. Forest Service, 
Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Those are the dollars that they use to acquire uh, properties from the Wilderness Land Trust upon transfer. Unless it's a direct donation from our organization to the managing agency, we by and large buy property and sell property. And, and the reason we act as a go-between is, is that Sometimes a property will come up for sale, the landowner's anxious to sell, and the agency can't move quick enough to get those funds allocated, those LWCF funds allocated in time, and they might miss the opportunity. I'm working on a project right now in Washington State where the Bureau of Land Management was working to acquire the last remaining inholding in the Juniper Dunes wilderness and had been at Engaging this landowner for more than a decade, he finally decided that it was time to sell and they just didn't, couldn't move quickly enough and were worried about losing sometimes that once in a generation opportunity. So they turned to the Wilderness Land Trust. We were able to acquire the parcel and now we're in the process of working with the BLM to transfer that property over to them and they will use LWCF funds to purchase that parcel from us. So then we can put those funds right back to work on the next project. Right. Now on your website, um, you folks did a, an inventory back in 2014 um, that showed there were 180,000 acres of private lands in different wilderness boundaries or maybe designated wilderness. Is that still a good number, 180,000? That, that's about right. Yeah. When the first inventories were done in 1992, there was about 454,000 acres of private inholdings within designated wilderness. Since that time, our work, along with other organizations that do somewhat similar work, uh, that number has been reduced to around 180,000 acres today. And so that's, that's what our mission is all about, is the pursuit of those remaining inholdings so that we can eventually our dream would be to acquire all of those inholdings, transfer them over to the public and for their ownership and enjoyment, and then lock up shop. But there's a lot of work to do. Projects are uh, increasingly complex, expensive. Uh, we certainly enjoy a good challenge. We're certainly willing to take on some risk, but it's gonna take some time. And uh, as you saw what we've accomplished in our first 28 years, we're just going to keep plugging away at it until we can keep reducing that number. So in short, you're, you're working to put yourself out of business. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We're talking today with Brad Borst, the president of the Wilderness Land Trust, a nonprofit organization that exists to acquire privately owned lands from willing sellers um, in, in settings surrounded by wilderness, official wilderness, or adjacent to wilderness areas. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. 
That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. We're back now with Brad Borst, the president of the Wilderness Land Trust, a nonprofit organization um, that's trying to put itself out of business by um, acquiring private inholdings from willing sellers in wilderness areas across the West and adjacent to wilderness areas. And, and Brad, um, you're also working on parcels in uh, designated wilderness or, or next to designated wilderness? That's correct, Kurt. Uh, our our mission, our primary mission, is to acquire those remaining inholdings in designated wilderness. And I, I like to use a an analogy of a, a piece of Swiss cheese for your listeners. The cheese is the designated wilderness area, and the holes in the center of the cheese and along the edges are those private inholdings. We're working to fill those in uh, to make that cheese that slice of cheese whole. There's no shortage of edge holdings as well. And these are parcels that directly abut the, the designated wilderness. They may be lands that local wilderness advocacy groups are working to get permanently protected as designated wilderness, working with their local, their congressional delegation to advance wilderness legislation through Congress and all the way to the president's desk. And, and or there might be a parcel that's just a little further away, uh, that has unique wilderness values that the agency would like to protect so that the, that development, that private development, whether it's, whether it's logging or mining or residential development doesn't go right up to the edge of the wilderness boundary and those effects spill over that boundary and have impact to the flora and fauna of the wilderness area. So a, a fair amount of our projects continue to uh, be be focused on edge holdings in, in order to help protect that designated wilderness area. Yeah, um, national parks. Uh, I know in the past you've had success in the national park system. I believe in 2016 and again in 2018, uh, the Land Trust played a role in adding some acreage to Rocky Mountain National Park in the Wild Basin area, I believe. Yes, uh, this was really a, a cool project. Uh, and I became president in 2017. So uh, we were um, right in the middle of this project. And so here's, here's the story behind it. it. It was a parcel, it was, it was uh, in the wild basin portion of Rocky Mountain National Park. And there was a 2000 square foot house that was visible throughout the basin. And if any of your listeners spent time in that area of the park, it's just, it's stunning. It's really beautiful, but here was this house that was originally constructed in 1938, and it was a private inholding within the designated uh, wilderness area within the boundaries of the park. And so it, was, it came up for sale, and 
we knew because of its proximity and its view that it was going to be bought up in a heartbeat. So we partnered with the, the, um, the Rocky Mountain Conservancy. Rocky Mountain Conservancy and uh, the Rocky Mountain National Park. We found a conservation buyer for that house. This person purchased the house so that it never actually made it onto the market and was in the hands of a conservation buyer. Uh, the gentleman did say that he would like to enjoy it for a couple of years. And so after purchasing it, uh, they did use it for a few years, but then in uh, 2013 notified Rocky Mountain National Park that they wanted to sell it. And so that's when we partnered with the, the National Park and the Conservancy to purchase the parcel, purchase the land. And one of the things that's interesting about the work we do, Kurt, is we have to, when we buy a parcel, we have to, we do a careful assessment of what's on the parcel. And in this case, you have a, a 2,000 square foot home that was quite livable, very nice. Uh, in fact, the, the landowner had even uh, upgraded it a little bit while he was using it and enjoying it. But we have to get those, those parcels, quote unquote, wilderness ready before we transfer them over to the managing agency. So in this case, we, uh, hired some contractors that then dismantled the house, took everything away, uh, did a remarkable job of completely dismantling the house so that the, there was no remnant and no evidence of that former 2,000 square foot home. That's amazing. And then we uh, transferred that parcel over in, uh, to the park in August of 2018. Uh, and in doing so, the driveway became, what I understand is a, uh, sort of a, a very smooth and uh, trail up to this really stunning viewpoint. And for someone, for handy, people who are handicapped, and we added 32 acres to Rocky Mountain National Park as new wilderness for everyone to enjoy. Whereas before it was private land and you, you weren't allowed to go out there and enjoy that viewpoint. Do you ever work on, um, I'll give you an example. There's a situation down at Zion National Park in southwestern uh, Utah where a company wants to um, develop 1,700 acres abutting the national park and, and turn it into a campground, um, privately run campground. And I was wondering if, if that sort of situation, w would the land trust possibly come in and try to buy them out to prevent that from happening? It depends on... Really, Kurt, it really depends on the need. Uh, if there is, if that potential development, now that's that's a campground versus a residential de development. But I believe it butts up to wilderness, official it, it wilderness. Butts up ex yeah. So in that case, if it was brought to our attention that this could have a detrimental effect to, to the national park or the designated wilderness, we will certainly take a, a good hard look at it. And if it fits the criteria of that it would impact the, the ecological significance of the wilderness area, if it would impact the, if it would have a, a, a social impact in terms of visitors to the wilderness area, or if it, um, then we would take a hard look at it and, and determine whether this is a parcel we should uh, work hard to acquire. It's, it's a little bit less of a threat than say, a large residential development that had paved roads and lights and, and your standard homes, but a campground, depending on how, 
again, how much uh, impact it might have to the, the, the wilderness area. That, that, that would help us determine our role in acquiring that parcel or not. I think they're talking about 5,000 people a night, a small city. <laughs> yeah. Um, looking out across the national park system, I mean, there's, there's 84, 85 million acres of, of national park lands. And, um, I know in the, the West, there certainly are more than a few that have private inholdings in them. Do you look out across the park system? I mean, how do you decide which, which parcels to, to go after? Well, uh, we utilize a very comprehensive, uh, inventory that we developed that really ranks all of the inholdings within designated wilderness and primarily in the lower 48 states. And again, the criteria really is based on three methods, an, an assessment of the parcel's development potential, an evaluation of its ecological importance, and an assessment of the social impacts on visitors and managers. And then within each one of each component there, there are five or six factors that give it a numerical score based on a system of low, medium, or high value for us to um, pursue. Every two years on average, Kurt, we send out a letter to the landowners who own those parcels, including the, the parcels that are remain within the National Park Service, to let them know who we are, to let them know we're interested in having a conversation with them should they want to sell their parcels. And um, we always follow up with them to make sure that um, we stay on their radar. It is not uncommon for us to get a phone call or an email or sometimes a letter from somebody who said, hey, we found this letter in dad's files or mom's files and are you still interested because there, an opportunity presents itself. So in that case, the, those, those parcels within the national parks fall in that state-by-state -state inventory and that's where we do that regular outreach. So much of the work we do and the success we've had to date is based on developing those relationships with the people that own those parcels. And I think it's, it's important to point out that the Wilderness Land Trust is not an advocate for wilderness. And this is subtle, but we all love wilderness, uh, but there are plenty of other organizations that do a very good job of figuring out what should and shouldn't be wilderness. And once that's been figured out, either designated or proposed, then we go to work on the land management issues the worst thing that could happen to us is that we would lose out on the potential to acquire a private inholding because we were perceived to uh, be, um, I guess, a, a, maybe a, a threat to that landowner's values. Uh, so we work very quietly to make sure that we never find ourselves in that awkward situation where we can't work with the landowner. So. Um, uh, hopefully that answers your questions about those remaining parcels in, in the national park system. Yeah. Um, off the top of your head, any, any idea how many acres in the park system you've been able to acquire over the years? We have not had a lot of uh, projects in uh, the national park. The Rocky Mountain National Park is probably our most notable project. We did have a project where we acquired 80 acres in Lassen. Volcanic National Park in California and 20 acres in the North Cascades National Park in the Stephen Mather Wilderness. Our inventory shows that there are still 259 parcels totaling just over 12,000 acres in national parks uh, in the lower 48 states. 
a vast majority of it is up in Alaska. But um, these are the parcels that we're still focusing on in the lower 48 states. And if those, if those opportunities arise, uh, then we're certainly going to pursue them. Do you, um, do you discuss these situations with the Park Service to, to get their thinking on where their priorities are as, in terms of parcels? Uh, that's a great question, and absolutely. Uh, again, relationships with landowners is part of the, uh, our success. The other part is having close working relationships with the, with the federal agencies. We are constantly meeting with them, talking to them, getting, uh, hearing from them in terms of uh, what their priorities are. When a project first comes on our radar, one of the first calls we make is to that agency to get their sense of where does this parcel fit in terms of their priority. And um, sometimes, more often than not, the, the agencies are, are more than happy to work with us on acquiring that parcel from us eventually. And, and that tells us that, again, uh, we can pursue this with full vigor. We've never failed to transfer a parcel that we've purchased over to public ownership. It's rare that we'll get a, a, a agency that shies away from um, having us acquire that parcel. But if it is, sometimes it's for more often political reasons based on a very conservative political landscape uh, mm-hmm. that might cause a rift in their relationship with the local uh, government. So, but that, yeah. that's not very often. Right, right. Um, so right now you're not working on any particular park parcels? At this point in time, I don't have any active parcels in the national park system that uh, we're working on. No. That could change with the mailings going out in uh, January. We tend to mail in January, but right now at this point in time, we don't. Sure. And I guess if people want to see where you are working or what you have done, if they went to your website, you have a, a Project Atlas page. Um that details your, your past work and, and some of the projects underway, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, www.wildernesslandtrust.org. We like to share our success stories in all, all the places we, we, we work and have been working. And uh, there is a map there. If you scroll down from the, on the landing page, scroll down and you can find that map. Uh, it's, it's a nice portal into the work that we're currently doing. We do, we do have, when it, when we're in the process of, negotiating with a landowner or in the process of um, acquiring, then there's a kind of a sensitivity, particularly if there is a, in, in the case of say mineral, let me give you an example. If we, if we buy a parcel of land and the, say the minerals are, are, have been severed from the surface rights, we will work hard to unify those two segments of the parcel before making a public announcement about a project that we're currently working on just due to the sensitive nature of trying to work through that process. Sure. That's a, that's a great point because if you go down to uh, Florida and I don't know if you work in the Southeast at all, but at big Cypress national preserve, there's a situation where um, some land was donated to the park service um, for big Cypress, uh, but the mineral rights were severed from the um, surface acreage. And they've got a situation now where there's a, an oil exploration company um, hoping to find some recoverable reserves there. And um, some people might say is tearing up the landscape of Big Cypress. And it'd be it'd be nice if uh, those mineral acres were um, transferred to the state or to the Park Service at the same time as the, the service acres were. Yeah, uh, that's right. And in addition to 
as part of getting the property wilderness ready uh, before transfer, not only do we have to ensure that there are no structures uh, or liabilities on the parcel, um, but we, we also work to unify the ownership of the land before transferring it to the federal agencies because they don't want to get acquire a property that's going to have manage, an additional management headache because that, that hasn't been resolved. Yeah, sometimes that can uh, create more problems than it solves in terms of either uh, demolishing the structures or, or having to maintain them for uh, historical um, attributes, I guess. Well, Brad, it's fascinating work that uh, the Wilderness Land Trust does. I appreciate you joining us today um, and, and giving us uh, some insights into your work and the, the task at hand. And it, it's got to be challenging and uh, obviously expensive. And if folks want to support your work, they can go to uh, your uh, website and make a donation directly, right? We would very much appreciate that. Uh, it's, a, it's a very pragmatic approach to adding to our wilderness preservation system. I have a, a long history in wilderness advocacy uh, when I sort of took the, made the switch to land trust work, I, I'm often uh, impressed with uh, all that we can accomplish just quietly buying and transferring. So when we transfer those parcels over to the federal agencies, and it, particularly if they're in holdings, they automatically become designated wilderness. So uh, that doesn't happen for free, and we welcome anyone's support. Or if questions, they have questions about our work, just give me a holler. I'll be happy to talk to another wilderness enthusiast. Okay, that's Brad Borst, the president of the Wilderness Land Trust, providing some insights into what they're doing to acquire private inholdings in officially designated wilderness in the United States. Brad, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Among the shows we're working on for future podcasts are efforts by an Italian company to build a sprawling development just outside Grand Canyon National Park near Tucson. How national park lands around Chesapeake Bay seem to benefit bald eagles more than other lands, and how the proposed Pebble Mine Project near Lake Clark National Park in Alaska might affect an endangered population of beluga whales. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Travelers' coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.